Would you join me, please, as we come before our Father in prayer as a church, uh, thanking God for and interceding on behalf of our nation and other churches around us and ourselves as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you declaring, as we just have in song, our need for you. Um, As a church, we are delighted to acknowledge that that's a fact, um, that we need you. Sometimes we really feel that need, other times maybe less so, but it's always true. And it is to your glory uh, that we need you and that you are receptive to us. So we thank you, Father, as we come this morning before the creator of heaven and earth, the Holy One whom we know we have offended rightly by our sin. You are right to be offended at it, and yet you love us and you hear us, and that is your grace. And so we come before you thanking you for that. And on this Memorial Day weekend, Father, where uh, in our nation we are reminded that throughout uh, the history of the nation, many people have had to not only serve but actually uh, die, far too young, we would say, uh, in order to continue to secure and maintain uh, the peace and the liberty that we enjoy. So as we think uh, of people who have uh, given their lives in service, uh, often through our military, in order to maintain Uh, this nation. We are grateful for them. We're grateful for the freedom and the country uh, in which we live and that we enjoy. And Father, as Christians of all people, um, we ought to recognize a gift when we see it because our very lives are defined by the fact that you laid down your life so that we might have life. And when we see smaller versions of that in people laying down their lives for the security of a nation, we understand it. And so I pray that even the gratitude of our hearts would reflect you and that you would help us to be uh, not at all entitled as people as we look around us and enjoy freedoms, but very humbled and very grateful. And so for today, Father, we think too, especially of um, people that are dispersed abroad uh, in the service of this country, particularly military and diplomatic personnel, some of them in very difficult and dangerous parts of the world, and we pray for them today. Uh, pray for their encouragement, for their safety. Um, we pray that you would give them places where they can connect in churches and hear the gospel, and that as they're very conscious, perhaps, of being away from home and living in a foreign place as representatives, I pray that that would make the gospel make that much more sense to them, and that you would would redeem them for your eternal glory. And Father, we think much more closely of home, of the um, embassies of your kingdom that local churches are, the partnership that we have with churches right here in Hillsborough. Uh, think of our friends over at New Life Baptist this morning in Hillsborough and Pastor Keith and pray for them. Uh, I pray that even as they gather this morning to worship uh, and to hear your word proclaimed and to respond to it, I pray, Father God, that you would help every member of that congregation develop uh, a much greater embassy mentality. A much greater understanding of the fact that we belong to uh, the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world, and we represent your kingdom in our community. Help them, I pray, to catch that vision more today when they leave their service than when they walked into it, and to have a great clarity of how to live that out this week. And lastly, Father, I want to pray that for myself and for every member of this church. I pray that you would make us uh, much more deeply aware of our um, home, and that it's, it's not here, uh, particularly perhaps when things seem to be going relatively well in our homes and in our work and, and maybe in our life. God, it is so easy to settle and to pursue um, a life and a career and a family and goals that we have for this life, and yet you've told us over and over again as we even open the Bible in a moment to look at the Sermon on the Mount, you're, you're telling us that we represent a much greater kingdom. And I pray that you would help us to develop that much more clearly. Help me to develop that much more clearly, that our mission is to represent you. And what a joy that is. What great purpose that gives to our lives, whether we think things are going well at the moment or whether they're much more of a challenge. And I pray that you would give us great clarity as to how to live that out very specifically this afternoon, tomorrow, this week, that we might represent you effectively and well. Use us despite our shortcomings, our failures, our sins, Give us a heart to recognize sin, to confess it, to be forgiven. I pray, Father God, for every person here who's a follower of Christ to be an effective uh, representative of your kingdom this week. And show us how to do that even now as we open your word. We pray these things for our good and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So here we are, the unofficial start of summer, right? That's what Memorial Day is. I don't know what all the, um, you know calendars and so on say, but like summer starts on Memorial Day weekend, not why it was originally created, but that's kind of how it works. Um, It's also known in the Pacific Northwest, of course, as payoff season. Um, You know, months and months, six, 
seven, eight, sometimes months of, of gray skies, and now all of a sudden it's like it warms up, and it gets sunny, and things grow again and bloom again, and it's awesome. Some ways, my favorite time of the year, so I hope you're enjoying your spring so far. Um, of course, as, as with everything in this world, uh, good stuff is mixed with bad, particularly if you have allergies. Uh, my heart goes out to you. This may not be payoff season. It may be pay the piper season. I don't <laughs> I don't know, but there are always uh, things mixed. I'm, I'm grateful I don't have allergies um, to pollen and things like that. Um, but I, I am reminded that there are uh, uh, good and bads to this time of year. For me, one of the things that happens in the spring is like I, I walk out and I start cutting the grass again because it actually starts growing again, you know. <laughs> and you're mowing the lawn, and that's where for the first time in like months, I look down and actually take a close look at my grass. And it's amazing how much grass isn't there. Do you know what I mean? Like when you step back and you, you know, from half a block away, my lawn looks fine. Just don't look too closely. <laughs> you get up close and suddenly it's like, uh, there's a lot of green there, but it's not all grass. Uh, part of Pacific Northwest too, right? It's the battle between grass and moss in the lawns at all times. I don't know about you, but many of us have neighbors, I certainly do in my neighborhood, that there's those people who like go to war on the moss and like somehow they figure out how to do it either they hire somebody to come take care of their lawn all year or or they just go after it and they're whatever fertilizing it and raking out dead moss or doing whatever they're doing like all year long and their lawns actually kind of look you know awesome and um then there's the rest of us there's there's actually a few neighbors who you can totally tell they're the people that like gave up a long time ago they're like this is oregon i mean you know moss grows on everything just don't fight it you know, and you walk up and there is no grass left. It's complete moss. Um, I don't know where you stand on that if you have a lawn to take care of. I kind of vacillate back and forth personally. Some years I'm like, I'm after it. Like, we're going to get this done because if you, if you just let it kind of go to seed, so to speak, you know, it's going to get really ugly. So this is the year, you know, whatever, and I'm killing moss and, you know, ripping stuff out and thatching it and doing whatever you're supposed to do to try to promote a healthy lawn. You go through all of this work in the spring and you're like, yeah, by the summer, it, it kind of looks a little better. That's good. And then the next spring comes around and I'm like, did I do anything last year? So then I get discouraged and I'll go through a year or two where it's like, I'm done. I, I don't care. I have better things to do with my life than kill moss. You know what I'm saying? Especially in this part of the country because it's not going anywhere. It's going to come back. And I just, you know, so forget it. And then I walk out again a year or two later, and I'm like, oh my goodness, there's too much moss here. I gotta get after, you know, and so I'm, I'm back and forth. I'm all over the place. Um, actually, that's not only a, a good seasonal uh, reality. That's not only a seasonal reality. It's a pretty good and fitting image for where Jesus is taking us today in the Sermon on the Mount. That ongoing battle that we have to fight is not only true in lawns, which don't really matter for eternity, um, but what, what the scripture is going to tell us this morning is that it's also true in relationships and in the mission that we have as Christians in this world, which does matter for eternity. We're at a point in Matthew chapter 5, Jordan read the passage for us a few moments ago in verses 21 to 26. If you don't have a Bible open there yet, I want to encourage you to grab one and open it. And we're going to walk through and see what our Lord has for us here, uh, these six verses um, we're beginning this morning, we're sort of at a critical sort of pivot point in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been talking about ever since we started uh, looking at this part of Scripture three Sundays ago. This is the, if, if you will, the beginning of the practical or the application part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is like almost all of it. <laughs> the overwhelming majority, like 90% of it, it seems like, is practical application. But as we've been saying, Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount with three key ideas that are sort of the, they really are the keys to understanding everything else that he says. In fact, he stepped back at the beginning to show us how this thing um, began by saying there are three essential things you need to understand, and then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is him applying those three key principles to multiple very specific areas of life. So today we start the specific applications. It's helpful to remember what the key principles were um, that we're actually applying. It was simply this. We started by seeing that God's world is invading our world. That's the whole premise of the Sermon on the Mount. These two worlds are colliding. Heaven is invading earth in the person of Christ. And these, uh, the value systems of these two worlds um, are completely contradictory. They're night and day different. So the collision of worlds is kind of a messy one, 
sometimes when God comes into this world to seek the redemption of people. Secondly, Christians, disciples of Jesus, those of us who have committed our lives to him as our Lord and Savior, are actually then given a mission. We have a purpose in this world. It's an ambassadorial mission. It's a representative mission. We represent the values of the kingdom of God and the message of the kingdom of God in um, this world. Uh, that's the, Jesus telling us, you are the salt of the earth as to his disciples. You are the light of the world. Everything about what we say and how we live is to represent the values of heaven rather than those of earth. That's our job. It gives great purpose to our lives, but it's also kind of messy because the collision of worlds is messy and we live right in the midst of that collision and so it can be very difficult sometimes to fully live out the values of God's kingdom which leads us right to the third and maybe the most essential point of all and that is that Christ himself is the key to successfully navigating this collision of worlds. Jesus Christ himself is the key to successfully living out our mission and this third point is probably in, in many ways the most important because it's, it's definitely the most distinctive. It's what, it's what separates the Christian faith from every other world religion. It's what makes the gospel of Jesus different than what our natural human religious instincts tend to be. Our natural assumption is we need to please God. We've got to do what God says, and the better you do, the happier God will be with you. So get after it. Work harder. So if you just look at those first two, do your best to represent God's world in this world and work hard at that, Christian. And the problem is if we stop right there, what we end up with is a heavy burden of religion where we're constantly trying to measure up to God's standards of what it means to be his representative. But Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount with perhaps the key verse, and he said, I have come not to abolish the law, that is God's um, standards and rules that he gave his people in the Old Testament. I didn't come to get rid of them. I came to fulfill them. And we talked about what that meant. It means two things, that he, he keeps the law for us in our place. That's the idea of Jesus as the true and greater Israel or the true and greater people of God that we talked about a couple of Sundays ago. So he gives us his righteousness in New Testament terms, but also he gives us a new heart. He said, I came to fulfill the law, to accomplish the purpose for which it was originally written. Why did God give his people the rules in the Old Testament? to help them be a distinctive and holy people who would reflect and represent him. But because of our sin, we always fail to do that. So Jesus says, I will not only keep the rules for you so you can be saved, but I will actually transform you as God's Holy Spirit invades our lives and gives us a new heart to live for him. So that's what he's trying to say. Two worlds are colliding. We represent the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, and Christ himself is the key to actually making that happen. Now, what does that mean? How does that work? What does that look like in life? Well, we're going to spend the next couple of months walking through situation after situation after situation that Jesus lays out and says, so if you're living these principles with respect to your money, here's how it looks. With respect to your relationships, here's how it looks. With respect to your marriages, with respect to uh, your religious worship, with respect to marriage, all of these kinds of things, he's applying these principles to specific situations. And today is the first one. His world is invading our world, so how does that shape my world? Jesus is going to begin to answer that in this passage by saying, let me show you how this plays out in your relationships together, specifically with other professing Christians. That's his main focus this morning. He's got these people who are his disciples. They've pledged themselves to him. And he says, okay, here, if you're living this out, here's how it affects your relationships with one another because it's going to shape them. It's going to change them in order to put the gospel on display. And so in these verses we're looking at, 21 to 26, Jesus really has, um, it, it's a pretty simple sort of flow of thought. He makes a point in the first two verses. We'll look at it in just a second. And then he, he creates two kind of mini parables where he's applying them to hypothetical situations, but they're very real life situations for people in the first century. And it's not hard to see how they would apply to our lives in the 21st century either. He gives us two situations where he shows us how that principle is going to play out. So we start with the principle in verses 21 and 22. You've heard it said by those of old, you shall not murder. Now there, of course, Jesus is quoting uh, from the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. He's actually quoting the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. Now, 
When he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, uh, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, what had happened is the Old Testament said, you shall not murder, that was instructions given to the ancient Israelites, and the religious leaders, the rabbis and the teachers, or in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the, the ones who were the experts in the law and who taught the people uh, the word of God, the common people, the word of God, they had essentially said, look, if you want to be okay with God, if you want God to be happy with you, not mad at you, you want to be on his good side, not his bad side, then you've got to follow his rules. And if you're following his rules, you're on his good side. So, don't murder. Pretty clear what that means. Are you doing that or not? Are you on God's good side or not? Well, here's a way to check. Have you killed anybody in cold blood? Yes, you have a problem with God, or God has a problem with you. <laughs> no, you're good. Like, you're doing it, right? You're keeping the law. So there's no judgment. You don't have to fear God coming after you, at least not in that area of your life, because you haven't killed anybody. Well, cool. Right? I mean, I'm not a perfect person, but I don't know about you. I haven't murdered anybody. If you have, I don't want to hear about it. Um, but... <clears throat> <laughs> kidding. Like, we'll assume that for most of us, that's not a terribly, I may have felt like at times I wanted to kill somebody. You know, we kind of joke about that, but I've never actually done it. So I'm good, right? God said, don't kill somebody, don't murder. I haven't murdered, so I'm good. Ah, Jesus says, that's what you've heard. But it's actually different. I tell you that the heart attitude is the main thing. And so in verse 22, he gives us three statements that are, they're essentially synonymous. They're all three different ways of saying the same thing. I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoa. What? I've been angry with a lot of brothers. <laughs> what do you, yeah, so you violated the law. Wait, 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 wait. I, I didn't murder any of them. No, Jesus says, but you were angry with them. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That was a a religious council at that time that would essentially convict people of, of sin when necessary. Whoever says, you fool, which was a common insult. It was a slang term back in the first century. He says, if you say that to somebody else, I'm telling you, you are liable to the hell of fire. All three of those statements are essentially saying the same thing. Jesus says he's taking God's standard from the behavior level and he's driving it down to the heart attitude level. He's saying it's not just a question of whether or not you technically kept the rules in your behavior. It's ultimately about whether or not your heart is reflecting the heart that God is trying to create when he gave us the rules in the first place. In other words, what he's really saying is that don't murder really means love your brother. Which is a lot harder to keep, right? <laughs> I mean, all the time. Don't, don't demean somebody. Don't be bitter and angry toward my fellow Christians. Love them at all times. Well, that's a lot harder to do than just not taking their life inappropriately. And that's exactly his point. You see, the issue that Jesus is dealing with, and we're going to just see this over and over and over again throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This is just the first of many times. He's going to say, you've tended to focus on just meeting the behavioral standards, kind of a superficial performance thing. God expects certain actions from us, and as long as you give him those actions, he's fine. He doesn't care what's really going on inside. And Jesus is saying that's never what God's point was. Jesus is not changing the rules of the Old Testament here. He's helping us understand what even the Old Testament was trying to do. He's trying to create a people whose heart loved God more than anything and would pursue him passionately more than anything. But you see, what the religious leaders had done and the people of God over centuries had done is the same thing we're all inclined to do. They had tamed the standards of God's um, uh, requirements by creating a bunch of legalistic rules. They had tamed it. You see, it's a way of trying to bring God's impossible standard under control by reducing it to some specific set of steps that I can meet. You know? Love your brother at all times? I don't probably have that one in me. <laughs> Don't murder anybody? Oh, I could do that. <laughs> Success, like I can look back over my whole life and say I haven't failed that one yet. I can do that. It's a way of reducing what God is after so that I can actually meet it. It's like if you've ever been um, on a horse, some of you are like super 
horse people keep horses or did. I never have, but I've been around horses enough and ridden them several times to know that um, any horse I've ever met is way stronger than me. That's just a fact. I mean, if it comes to like a tug of war between like I'm, I'm standing next to some horse and, and I want it to go left and it wants to go right and I grab it by its neck and I say, no, we're going this way and it turns and says, no, we're going that way, guess which way we're going? We're going right. I mean, it, they are huge animals. They are incredibly strong. There's no way I'm going to win a tug of war with any horse. But, of course... <laughs> When you train them correctly, or break them, I suppose it's called, uh, you put a bit in its mouth with the reins and ride it and tug left, and the horse learns to say, okay, fine, that's where we're going. It's, you put a bit in its mouth, and it's a way of kind of getting some measure of control. <laughs> How much depends on the horse, I suppose, but, but getting some measure of control over an animal that there's no way I could just overpower. And that's kind of a picture of what legalism is like. God has this high standard where he says, represent me to the world, and my sinful heart doesn't let me do it. So I say, well, I can't do that, but if I break it down to just some list of religious checkboxes, oh, I could do those. And since I've done those, I feel like I'm good with God. Jesus says that's not what the law was ever trying to say. Love your neighbor as yourself is unlimited. Don't kill anybody in cold blood is a lot more specific. I can do that. Similarly, think of the the calling that Christ has ultimately given us. We talk about it a lot here at Harvest. Value Jesus more than anything and pursue him as the greatest treasure of your life. That's essentially the the burden of of the Bible. That's the message of scripture for Christians. Value him and treasure him and pursue him more than anything else in life. Well, how do I do that? hundreds of ways every week. I mean, that, that, that never, you never run out of implications for that statement. I can always do more of that, and it, it can become overwhelming. So what if I reduce it down to, okay, pursue Jesus as more valuable than anything? Well, what if I say, all right, I'm going to read my Bible for 10 minutes every day as a way to pursue Jesus? It's a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a good thing to do especially if you're not reading your Bible at all. It'd be a great place to start, great thing to do. Unless it becomes a way of taming the law. Because <laughs> now I can say, wait a minute, I read my Bible, I committed to do it seven days out of the week, this week, I read it six days, six out of seven, ain't bad, check, I'm doing pretty good. I'm pursuing God, right? Maybe. But am I doing it out of duty, obligation? Is it just this sort of superficial performance thing? Or am I doing it out of heart? That's where Jesus is taking us. That's where Jesus is taking us. Don't tame the law, he's saying, by creating these religious, um, legalistic standards. And now he says, let me, let me show you what that looks like in this area. This, this like, um, don't murder means love your brother. Well, what does it mean to love our brothers? What does it mean to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? At this point, Jesus is going to give us two little vignettes, two little scenarios, in which he says, like, I'm going to tell you how this will look if you play it out. Now, both of these scenarios, it's worth mentioning just before we dive into them, deal with a very specific relational situation. And that specific situation is when I, as a Christian, suspect or become aware of the fact that another Christian has a problem with me. Like I've done something to offend them or I failed to do something that offended them. I did something that, that hurt them. They, they have an issue with me. They have something against me. And the moment I realize that as a Christian, I suddenly have a choice as to what I'm going to do with that piece of information. And that moment of choice is what Jesus is dealing with in both of these vignettes. Let's read them both. The first is verses 23 and 24. So, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Note, he's not talking about if you have something against your brother. That's a different situation. But that's not the one he's talking about right now. You now realize that your brother has something against you while you're in the midst of your religious act of worship. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's the context of uh, first century Judaism as it was practiced in Jerusalem. The temple had been uh, built. There were sacrifices going on that all the good Jews would come to uh, the temple and and, and perform their various sacrifices. So the bottom line is we we don't have temples here and we don't do sacrifices, but the idea is clearly like you're engaged in the obvious acts of worshiping God. 
A rough parallel might be like you're reading your Bible because it's something you committed to do every day for modern Christians. You're going to church. You're singing worship songs. Whatever it is you're doing as the obvious acts of worship that we all do all the time, as we should. So you've prioritized those things in your life. But in the midst of that, you realize that somebody else, another brother or sister in Christ, is offended by you or has something against you. What do I do with that realization in that very moment? And what he says is pretty clear. He says I should prioritize reconciliation before I prioritize acts, uh, overt acts of worship. I should prioritize reconciling with that brother or sister over outward acts of worship. Notice he doesn't say don't do the outward acts of worship. That's not the point. He doesn't say stop praying, stop singing, stop going to church until this person is perfectly happy with you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, be aware of the tendency we all have to tame God's standards through outward rules that we can follow. Don't let your worship of God, your church attendance, your Bible reading, your prayer, your giving financially to support that missionary or to support your local church, whatever it is, don't let those things become a bit that you try to put into the mouth of God's standards so that you can tame it. No, 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 prioritize the heart first so that your worship of God then comes from a heart that is pure and is devoted to him. So yeah, do the worship, but prioritize the heart issue. Take care of that as your number one priority. Don't sing songs to Jesus about how great his love for people is when my own love flatly contradicts that. I have no love for that person because they have an issue with me and I think that's their issue. That's my attitude. So now I'm going to go say, Jesus, how awesome that you love us no matter what. Right? Do we see the problem? If my life is supposed to represent Jesus, which it is if I'm a Christian, then that's a disconnect. And Jesus says, you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with the heart. Don't listen attentively to preaching about how much God cares for us when you harbor a demeaning or callous attitude toward your spouse or toward another church member. Jesus doesn't say quit singing and quit listening to preaching. What he says is deal with the heart issue. It's worth pointing out just before we go on here that in this whole thing, Jesus is assuming conflict between Christians will happen. It's a given. It's it's an assumption. Um, He's just assuming that every Christian will give offense to or hurt the feelings of another Christian somewhere at some point. I mean, it's just, it would be impossible for that not to, to happen. You put any two people together closely working with each other over any period of time and eventually somebody's going to do something that is at least a mild offense to the other person. And that's when there's two people. What if there's several hundred who are together as a church family? It's just inevitable. Sometimes it can be easy to assume if we're not really thinking about it. If I was a better Christian, I would never offend anybody. And Jesus is telling me, never give offense to anybody. And so if anybody is upset with me at all, I just kind of, sometimes maybe depending on your background or your temperament or whatever, it can just be devastating. Like, oh, I'm horrible, I gave offense to somebody. At some level, everything Jesus is saying here assumes that that's gonna happen. So if I could point that out and just encourage us to take a deep emotional breath and realize that everything in the New Testament expects and assumes that within a church community like ours, we will be giving one another offense, whether that's the fault of the person giving the offense, the fault of the person receiving the offense, or both. It's just, it's going to happen. There is an inevitability to conflict and issues between people. It's not necessarily true that either person has automatically failed in that case. Friction and and conflict are inevitable when people come in close contact over time. The issue is, what do we do with it as Christian people once we become aware of it? It's sort of like sometimes we say, you know, if you are tempted toward substance abuse or tempted toward sexual lust or something like that, those temptations themselves aren't yet automatically sin. It's what you do with that temptation in the moment that determines whether or not you're going to head down a sinful road or not. In some ways, this is kind of a parallel to that. The existence of conflict itself doesn't automatically mean something's wrong. The question is, once I've become aware of it, what do I do with it? That's what Jesus is dealing with here. And his command is clear. Prioritize reconciliation over outward acts of worship. He doesn't focus here on 
whatever the original offense was. He doesn't qualify it by saying if it's a legitimate offense or, you know, if it's their problem or your problem. He says none of that. He just says, there you are, a Christian. You realize that some other Christian suddenly has an issue with you. What do I do? He says, if you're going to reflect the heart of God, you prioritize reconciliation. Keep short accounts and seek to reconcile with one another. That's essentially the meaning of the second vignette, which just takes the same thing a step further. First one, he kind of says, we need to prioritize reconciliation um, over our outward acts of worship. And then in the second one, it's really designed to tell us, like, look, if you're going to play this out, what it's going to mean is that you're going to keep short accounts with people in all of your relationships. So to make that point, he gives us this other vignette about uh, two uh, people, presumably uh, disciples of Jesus, who are in some kind of a conflict that has actually led to um, court. Uh, They couldn't resolve it, and it's now going before some public magistrate. Uh, it's worth pointing out that this is just a, it's a, it's a parable. It's a, it's a vignette. This is not just applying to people who actually get involved with the legal system today, although it could apply there too. But he's actually talking about this, this could be anything in your life, not just whether or not you go to court. So here's the vignette, verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. So once again, somebody has accused you of doing something wrong and you presumably weren't able to work that out between you, so now they're taking you to court, and what does he say should be your attitude toward that? Lest your accuser uh, hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You know what Jesus is saying there? You kind of have two options, basically, when somebody is saying to you, hey, you've done something wrong to me, and they're offended and they're hurt. This is another brother or sister in Christ. Option number one, I can let it kind of go to seed, so to speak. I can say, look, they're, they're saying something's wrong. I don't think it is. They have an issue with me. And guess whose issue that is? Theirs. So, I didn't do nothing. Now, this is a kind of a simple matter of wisdom. He's like, the only potential problem with that is like you might go before a judge who's going to agree with them, and then what are you going to do? <laughs> In other words, again, this isn't about court systems. What he's saying is when you let a relational conflict like that go to seed, it often becomes over time a much bigger and a much more destructive thing than it would have been had you chosen option two, which is to say early on, hey, look, let's try to work this out. We may not be seeing eye to eye on this thing, but it's important to me to work this thing out with you because you're my brother or you're my sister in Christ. And if you're able to work it out ahead of time before it goes to seed, everybody's much better off. So in other words, the principle, keep short accounts with people. Don't let um, offenses and, and potential issues go to seed when you as a Christian become aware that another Christian has an issue with you. That is so contrary to our natural inclination, isn't it? So often I have either suspected somebody might have an issue with me, or I know for a fact that they do, (laughs) either way. And if you're anything like me, the first response that I have to that is like, oh boy, ostriches look really smart all of a sudden. I just want to stick my head in the sand and like ignore it, right? I, I I don't want to deal with that. (laughs) I have better things in my life to do with that. If they have an issue, maybe it's their issue, and they should come to me, right? That's about them. That's on them. I don't have any obligations here. And I just want it to, I just kind of hope if I turn a blind eye, it'll just like go away. Like all of that wonderful moss in my grass that I just didn't take care of last year. You know, if you stay a half a block away and just stare at my front lawn, it looks pretty good. Just don't look too close. (laughs) you'll notice how much of that green is not grass, right? I would rather just turn a blind eye and just hope that all that moss will go away. But of course, it doesn't. Over time, it'll just take over. It's corrosive. It's acidic. It will eat away at the lawn just like a conflict can eat away at a relationship. I thought of an example of this that I had several years ago. It was a it's funny, it was kind of a small situation, but this is years ago, and I still remember it like it was yesterday because I was faced with this choice. I was in graduate school at the time working um, in an office in Gresham. Uh, this was actually a, an issue that came up between myself and a coworker who wasn't even a, a Christian, but the same principle applied. I worked there with a lady who's about my age, um, had gone through some really rough stuff in her personal life, and she had a little bit of a habit of oversharing, if I could put it that way. 
Um, she just kind of liked to talk in a loud voice so everybody in the office could hear about her life situation and make caustic comments about the other people in her life. And, you know, it was just her way of venting some of her frustrations, but it kind of got a little old. And I got a little irritated with it one day. And I'd worked with her for a while and was comfortable enough with her that one day I just sort of impulsively, she was making some comment to me about some people involved in her life or some situation. And I just made this thoughtless, like careless comment. I essentially just responded with something to the effect of, you know, well, look, if you never didn't do A, B, or C, you wouldn't be in X, Y, or Z. So, you know, and it wasn't quite that blunt, but that was the message. <laughs> and it was a quick comment, and she didn't really respond to it at all in the moment. She didn't laugh. She didn't cry. She didn't get angry. She just kind of like didn't really respond to it at all. And then it, you know, quickly went away, and we all just kind of went back to work. And I didn't think much about it until a couple hours later. It's like in the afternoon, I'm suddenly going like, my conscience was a little pricked. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if that came across kind of harsh. <laughs> my immediate response was, ah, you're imagining things. So I just went back to work, right? And we finished the work day and I went home. And that night, my conscience was still bothering me a little bit. I'm like, you know, the more I think about what I said, the more, like, if I was in her shoes, that probably wouldn't have been a fun thing to hear, you know, and so I'm like, but she, I mean, maybe, maybe it was no big deal, I mean, maybe it just, she's sarcastic all the time, maybe she just took it as sarcasm, maybe, I, I wasn't sure if she was offended or not, and that's the moment we're talking about here, right? There it is, I, I think there might have been an offense, but I'm not sure, and there's two roads that are clearly panning out before me, one is the ostrich road, just stick your head in the sand and pretend and hope it'll go away, if maybe there wasn't even an issue, or if there was, um, you know, maybe it'll just, she'll just get over it and it'll go away. I just, I don't want to deal with it. If I just don't look at the moss, it'll all be fine, right? The other option was obviously, here she go back to her the next day and say something. Well, to make a long story short, by the grace of God, um, my conscience was pricked enough that <laughs> I decided I should probably go back and say something. Although I wouldn't have all, at all been surprised, just based on how it went down, if she had said, you know, um, like, hey, hey, I didn't even, no, I didn't really think of it, hey, it was no big deal. In fact, I was kind of hoping that's what she would say, because then I wouldn't feel so bad about myself. So I went to her and I, I said, hey, you know, um, by the way, yesterday, you know, we were having that conversation here um, at your desk, and, and, and I made that comment about your situation. And, you know, I realized kind of afterwards, it bugged me a little bit, because I realized that might have been kind of a hard thing to hear. Um, I don't know whether or not it was, but like I could see how um, that could have hurt your feelings. And if it did, you know, I'm really sorry. At which point, I was hoping she would say, oh, nah, no big deal. I didn't even think about it. Thanks for thinking of me, but nah, no big problem. And then I would have laughed, it would have been fine. What she actually said was, huh, Thanks. Because now I knew <laughs> that actually she'd heard exactly what I said, and it zinged her a little bit. It didn't devastate her, but that was it. You know, it's like, oh, all right. So then I had to back up and be a little more. I'm like, you know, it, it was thoughtless, it was impulsive, and I, I, I just shouldn't have said it. It was sarcasm that was totally out of place, and I'm very sorry if that hurt your feelings. Okay, well, I appreciate that. And we, you know, sort of made up, and we we're fine. But... that was a battle. It was a battle in my own head. Like, how am I going to resolve this? And I'll tell you what my heart wanted to do. It wanted to just avoid it. When a disciple of Jesus knows that someone has something against them, Jesus' command is clear. Don't let it go to seed. Keep short accounts. Follow up on it. Seek to resolve. By the way, it's worth pointing out at this point, whether or not there's resolution isn't entirely up to us because there's two people involved in the situation at least and forgiveness is you know, it's a reconciliation, rather, is a, is a two-way street. I mean, what if, back to this situation, what if this gal had been more hurt than she was? Or what if she had just chosen to seize that, you know, that, that offense and hold on to it and nurse a grudge and be really upset and angry with me? I mean, there's nothing I could do to make her um, change her mind or forgive me. What if reconciliation doesn't um, come about as a result of our efforts? Well, the Bible helps us there too. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, if possible, insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. If possible, insofar as it depends on you, Christian, live at peace with everybody. 
Bible recognizes you can't guarantee that you'll get forgiven, but you can control whether or not you ask for forgiveness, whether or not you own your own stuff, whether or not you care about the offense given, whether or not you prioritize relationship over being right. You see, at the end of the day, that's really what this comes down to. That's really what it comes down to. When it comes to this issue of there may be, or I definitely know there is an offense between me and somebody else, am I gonna choose being right or am I gonna choose relationship? We were talking about this last week in our staff meeting and Sandy threw that phrase out. I thought it was a good one, uh, so I'm plagiarizing. There you go. It really comes down to an issue of right versus relationship. Which is gonna be the priority? And that's why this is such a hard issue. That's why Jesus is saying it's not about the actions at the end of the day. It's about your heart because this priority, whether it's right or relationship, is a heart issue. Like, when, when, I'm, when I'm not sure if there's an offense or maybe when I think there is an offense, I know there's an offense, and I don't want to pursue reconciliation, why don't I want to pursue reconciliation in that moment? Like, why is my bent to just avoid it and look the other way? Answer? Pride. <laughs> it's just garden variety pride. It's a hard issue. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to feel humiliated. I don't want to admit I was wrong. It's just pride. Jesus says, that's what's driving us. And if your heart fully belongs to Christ... He is working pride out of you and working a passion for himself in you. That will change your actions because it changes your motives. I would rather not go back and ask if there was an offense. I would rather wait for them to tell me if there was an offense because if I ask, you know, it's a way of maybe being uncomfortable and I'd rather be comfortable than prioritize a relationship. Jesus says it's pride. Or often if I know that somebody has an offense with me, like we said earlier, I know somebody has an issue with me, but I say, you know what? That's your issue. That's not my issue. That's your issue. You need to resolve that. You need to work out, work that out. And boy, if that isn't obviously pride, <laughs> I don't know what is, but it happens to us all the time, isn't it? Ask any two married people. Maybe my spouse is upset because we argued about something last night. We couldn't come to an agreement on it where we were going to go on vacation this year, how we were going to spend this money or pay this bill, what we were going to do with the kids in this situation. It could be any one of a hundred things. And sometimes in the best marriages, it doesn't matter. You come to a place where you just don't see eye to eye and maybe you hash it out and you work it out, but you can't work it out and you just come to two very different conclusions. And you go to bed kind of mad at each other and hurt by each other and things that were said and tones of voice and on and on and on and on it goes. And then you wake up the next morning and it's a little chilly in the house. You know what I'm saying? Even in August, it's like, hmm. A lot of deflected eye contact, a lot of furrowed brows, a lot of silence. You know, and I just know, like, okay, now there's something between us. What do I do in that moment? Well, <laughs> I can say, if they're upset, if, if she's upset, that's on her. Right? I mean, that, that's her thing. I mean, I, I can look back at my, I think my position is still the right one. Um, I don't think I did or said anything wrong. And so if she's all upset about that. She's all upset about that. I mean, I'm actually defended one. Her tone of voice was kind of bad. You know, and on and on I go. It's up to her. I'm not pursuing this. She needs to. He needs to. It's my stupid husband's fault, right? That's human nature. And by the way, so much popular marriage advice is, follows right along that kind of thing these days, whether it's just talking to your friends or reading books or listening to experts. I mean, so many people are like, hey, not everybody, but so many people are like, man, if there's a conflict between you guys at home, man, you got to stick up for your rights. Don't let that person push. They need to come to you. You just stand your ground. And it's so good for our marriages, isn't it? Or the alternative, an alternative is I can risk breaking the silence, knowing that I might get zinged right back, but take a deep breath <laughs> and say, you know, listen, um, I'm sorry we're not seeing this thing eye to eye. Uh, hopefully, eventually, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to come, you know, work this out and come to some meeting of the minds on, you know, whatever the issue is. But, you know, regardless, I want us to be okay. Like, that matters to me. No matter what we do with the kid or the money or the plan or whatever it is. I want us to be okay. And so, like if I did or said anything during this whole thing that was hurtful, or if I said it in a way that was hurtful, I want you to let me know that. 
And I want, I want to be able to hear that. I'm committed to listening to you say that. And I'll own whatever tone of voice or choice of words or whatever it is I gave offense because I want to be reconciled with you. I mean, I still think on the situation this and you still think that and I get that we're not on the same page yet, but that doesn't mean we have to relationally have something between us. And so I want to own that. That's about prioritizing relationship over being right. It doesn't mean you have to give in on the issue necessarily, although you might want to if it's not that important. But it doesn't necessarily mean I have to say I was wrong about the issue, but did I do anything that caused offense or caused hurt? I need to own that. It's about choosing relationship over being right. This is also important because two worlds are colliding. And we represent God's world in this one. That's why Jesus is bringing all of this up. What is God's world? What is God's value system? And when we think about this idea, back to our big ideas in the Sermon on the Mount, what is it when two worlds are colliding, God's world is invading our world? What is so different about his world and his message? Well, his message is the gospel. And when you think about it, the gospel is God prioritizing relationship over right. He never denies what's right. God never calls something that's true false or something that is wrong right. He never denies the reality of our sin. He's very honest about it, brutally so in many cases, but he doesn't prioritize it over relationship. God becoming man is the most non-right thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe. When you think about it, the infinite becoming finite the offended one becoming the gracious pursuer, the author of life condescending to experience death, that is wrong on every conceivable level. If God prioritized right over relationships, friends, every one of us would be in hell. Every one of us. God says, I'm never going to pull any punches about right and wrong, but I'm pursuing you that's my message. And that's how we reflect him is when we do the same thing. Secondly, that's our mission. As Christians saved by grace, our mission in life is to convey the values and the message of the gospel that saved us. Our calling as Christians, our job, our marching orders, what gives purpose and meaning to your life every day when you get out of bed is to prioritize relationship over being right, never denying right and wrong, but prioritize the pursuit of relationship because that's who our God is. To seek reconciliation when we know that someone has something against us so that the heart of Jesus would be seen and experienced in how we live. Do you see how all this fits together? This isn't just good relationship advice. This is God saying this is your mission to convey the truths of the gospel. But we need to end on this third point. We need Jesus to do that. We need Jesus to do that. And as we said at the beginning of this, it's so essential to make this point because if we stopped right there, if we just said God is a relational pursuer, so we should be relational pursuers too, and we ended the sermon, what we would have is a huge weight of monstrous guilt on us because that's not who we are deep down inside. And if we're honest, we all know it. We all know it. And I can just try to kind of screw up the courage and muster up the strength to be a more gracious and forgiving and pursuing person, but I'm going to fairly quickly run out of gas, especially when I've been really hurt or really offended or I think somebody else has wronged me or maybe they're wrongly accusing me of, of being in the wrong when I don't think I'm in the wrong. It is really hard because it is so contrary to our nature. And we're just going to try and fail and try and fail and try and fail and just be crushed under the weight of the law, which is exactly how many people feel when they read what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Why is what he's saying so heavy? Why does he say it's all about the heart? Why does he say you're constantly failing? Because he's trying to shock religious people out of taming the law to recognize the weight of the fact that we can't bear it on our own. But don't ever forget that he started the whole thing by saying, I have come to bring the law to its fulfillment. I've come to keep the law. I've come to make you a law-keeping kind of people. My spirit in you is what transforms your heart. I need Christ to give me a new heart that will lay down pride and prioritize reconciliation because it sees his infinite worth is ultimately beautiful. Let me just close with this. What does that mean practically? Um, three thoughts. There's more. This is not... This is just me. This isn't Bible. (laughs) 
but take this for what it's worth to start your own thinking. When I suspect, if I'm gonna put all this into practice seriously as a Christian, when I suspect that someone, especially another Christian, has something against me, or if I know for sure that they have something against me, three thoughts. First of all, don't do anything at first other than think about how you're thinking about the situation. Um, Don't avoid it. Don't resist the temptation to just turn away from the moss and hope it'll go away. But rather, kind of reframe it. Reframe the situation. Think of the situation in biblical terms, not self-justifying cultural terms. This is just between you and that person, and they're in the wrong, so you've got to defend your rights. And yeah, we get enough of that stuff in our culture. We don't need to keep repeating it to one another. Jesus gives us a whole different way of looking at it. He says, I have come to reconcile, and that is your job. See this as an opportunity to put Christ on display and see that as much better than actually being right and winning in the situation. Secondly, to help with that, pray. Before I go do anything, before I talk to that person, pray. Confess my desire to be right as the self-willed pride that it really is. Like, call it sin before God, because God calls it sin. Agree with him that he's right. When he says, my self-justifying nature is sinful, it's about me, God, it's about my pride. Pour it out before him, and then ask him. That's kind of the negative, correct? (laughs) Confess the sin so it can be forgiven. And then there's the positive. Ask him for a new heart that will actually be more excited about making him visible than about being right. Do you know that that's possible? Do you know that that's actually possible? To experience being more excited about making Jesus known than about being right? It is. With the Spirit of God in you, it is possible. Ask him for that heart. Lastly, act. Go to the person. Be the initiator. Own any words or actions that you have that you may have legitimately contributed to this creation of offense or this appearance of offense. Acknowledge how a person feels and ask for forgiveness where it's appropriate. Prioritize, even if there's not 100% agreement on every issue, prioritize the relationship and communicate to that person that you prioritize the relationship because that's who God is for us. And if it wasn't, we'd have no hope. Friends, if we actually lived this way all the time, as a church, with one another, how countercultural would that be? You talk about being an embassy, <laughs> a witness to a whole different way of living. That's our calling and that's our mission. Because it probably doesn't really much matter if you're a Christian with a lawn that's full of moss. But it does matter if you're a Christian with relationships that are full of conflict. Let's bring that to our Father. We're going to come to the communion table right now. We do this regularly, as Jesus told us to, twice a month, in acknowledgement of our need for him, the hope that he's given us, the need for his sacrifice to cleanse us from our sins and to empower our righteous living. So I want to ask the music team to come up right now and go ahead and partake of communion. Uh, If you're new to us, here's how we do this. Um, On this last Sunday of every month, there's four communion tables, two here, two on the sides in the front. There's two in the back of the worship center. There's also one up in the balcony. You just head in a few moments to the one that is the closest to you. What we're going to do is just have a time of reflection where nobody's moving around yet. Um, Music will be playing in the background. That's just a time to just maybe close your eyes, block out distractions, pray, especially if you're a Christian. Um, Bring anything that God has brought to your mind up with him in prayer, just silently where you're at. Confess sin, do whatever it is you need to do. We'll give you a moment of reflection. And then um, Pastor Drath will be up here and he'll tell us when it's appropriate to come forward. And you can just get up at any time over the next two or three songs and head toward the table that's closest to you, grab one of the pieces of bread, dip it in the cup, and participate in communion. It's a reflection of the broken body of Christ and shed blood of Christ. So if you are a Christian and Christ is your Lord and Savior, come and receive communion as an expression of our dependence on him. If you've not made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then we would encourage you not to come up to the communion table. You can just stay where you're seated, which is totally fine. People are getting up and sitting down. It doesn't matter. But as God's people, we're gonna come and announce through this act that Jesus has given us that we're dependent on him for life and for forgiveness of sin. So let's take a moment and just reflect. And then in a minute, uh, we'll get up and we'll receive communion together.